This is a conversation with one of my climate heroes. I'm going to put him on the spot here with that. Uh, it's pro probably a lot of people's climate heroes, Jigger Shaw. I read Jigger's book, uh, Creating Climate Wealth, when I was 23. And I was just telling him before we hit record, it kind of set me down on the path that led me to Nexus and what it is today. So thank you, Jigger. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. Before we get started, here's a quick note from our sponsor. As we covered in our recent blog series on the five vital roles, Smart buildings require engineers, and engineering that allows OT and IT systems to seamlessly and securely integrate with each other and integrate with common platforms. Creating a successful building intelligence strategy entails translating the owner's goals to outcomes, use cases, intelligent building technologies, and enhanced MEP systems. To learn about what JBMB is calling MEP 3.0 and the value of building intelligence design, Check out our friends at JBB and specifically their podcast conversation with Wired Score at the link in the show notes. All right, welcome to the Nexus podcast. Jigger was most recently co-founder and president at Generate Capital, where he focused on helping entrepreneurs accelerate decarbonization solutions through the use of low-cost infrastructure as a service financing. And then prior to that, he founded Sun Edison, uh, a company that pioneered the pay-as-you-save solar financing. After Sun Edison. Jigger served as the founding CEO of the Carbon War Room, a global nonprofit founded by Sir Richard Branson to help um, entrepreneurs address climate change. And a lot of us have listened to Jigger for years uh, on the Energy Gang podcast, uh, which we've also learned a ton from him on there. He is now leading the DOE's loan programs office, and he's here on the podcast today to talk about loaning out money to all of you people that are listening to this for deploying building technologies so Jigger, I know we have uh, less than an hour for this, so we're not going to go deep as we normally do and do a lot of stuff, and I don't want to waste any time, but I have a sort of relevant icebreaker, which is <laughs> <laughs> which is how smart and decarbonized is your home? Uh, my home is um, somewhat smart, uh, you know, smart thermostat, smart EV charger, uh, smart I have a solar plus battery storage system. Um, I'm building um, a new house and that one's going to be very smart. So it's going to okay. have like all the features in it, et cetera. I have to say like putting all the smart stuff in as a retrofit, I find to be hard to do compared to new construction. Totally. Yeah. That's one of the things we talk a lot about on this show for sure. <laughs> as you can imagine. Yep. Yep. Um, but I bet, I bet if we pulled this entire audience, you'd have, you'd have one of the greenest homes, if not the greenest home probably, but yeah, no, it's, um, and it comes in handy. We had, uh, that polar vortex where it got to like six degrees or whatever. And, uh, the house stayed pretty warm throughout without, a the heat pump having to work that hard just cause it's, it's well insulated and all that stuff. So totally. What are you doing for your new home? Just real quick. Uh, well, we're looking at like the sort of the Lutron system with like, I think Corbin systems is like, you know, sort of smart panel. 
Mm-hmm. And then um, then there's like smart EV chargers as well. Like okay. the, like the goal is to be able to take it off grid and for it to like um, move the electrons, you know, to where it needs to go in, in an off grid fashion. So totally. We're excited. Exciting. Exciting. All right, let's jump in. So I have a, a couple of questions from the audience. So if I shout out to someone that you've never heard of, it's because I've, I've solicited questions from the audience mm-hmm. for Jigger. So this one's from Corey Moseman. So shout out to Corey. Thank you, Corey. He said, um, with Sun Edison, you changed the game, not with new technology, but with business and financial model innovation. Are you still of the opinion that business model innovation is one of the keys to unlocking decarbonization at scale? Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So sure. I think, but like, I mean, look, I think that, um, and the loan programs office actually has like sort of this unique role to play within that ecosystem too. Right. I mean, when I started Sun Edison, um, there was no loan programs office that was willing to provide debt first. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of folks thought that solar PPAs were, were super risky. Um, but I would say that, you know, today I sort of broadened it a little bit to say that ultimately we have the greatest innovation engine um, on the planet in the Department of Energy here in the United States right over the last 45 years. What we need is to figure out a way to get this technology into the hands of consumers. And business, you know, model innovation is my expertise, but there's certainly other people who bring expertise to the table too, but we just got to move past that 1% early adopter uh, phase and really get into the mass market. Totally. Yeah. And we'll talk about how you guys are doing that in just a second. Um, Another question we had from the audience is um, this phrase that I think a lot of people associate with you, with you, which is deploy, deploy, deploy. Can you sort of explain to our audience what, why you've sort of been shouting that from the rooftops and what that means? Well, I mean, I think the secretary is the one who started it, so I'm happy to you can't like, take credit. give okay. her credit for it. But I look, I think that ultimately um, we really believe in innovation here at the Department of Energy, and we still believe in innovation. But I think there's a lot of people who got away with saying the technologies that we have today aren't worth deploying at scale. We have to keep innovating first before we deploy. Mm-hmm. And that's just patently false. Like we have an extraordinary suite of technologies that need to deploy, be deployed right now. And deployment leads to more innovation because you learn so much from the deployment that it leads to more innovation and it creates that beneficial cycle, which is the learning curve, which we all know has reduced the cost of wind and solar and lithium ion batteries and EVs. And so I, I just think we're in a, in a place right now where we have to be deployment forward um, uh, to complement the innovation that we're already good at. Yeah, I was listening to you on the carbon copy with with Stephen and Catherine lately, it was kind of like a, a throwback to the the Energy Gang that episode. Um, you talked about moving to the how. Can you talk about what you meant by that? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of people who um, are comfortable with the what. Right? We need to electrify everything. We need to move to more electric vehicles. We need to move to more heat pumps. Right? We need to move um, to smarter buildings. We've got to like you know allow the um, you know, the independent system operators to pay for virtual power plants, right? So under first quarter of 2222. So you've got a lot of this what stuff. And then the question becomes, how do you do it? Like, do you use aggregators? Like, do you use homeowner associations? Do you use like, how exactly do you do that? And then where does the trust come from? Like, do you trust your homeowner association? Like they say nasty things about you on Nextdoor. 
Like, do you go like an aggregator? Like, how do you actually figure this out? Like, how do you make sure you treat people with respect so that if they don't want that level of sacrifice in their home and demand flexibility, that they are able to opt out of the system, but then they want to be opted back in because they don't want to like lose out of the dollars during those emergency events, right? And so I think when you think about, and the same thing's true with like nuclear, like everyone's, you know, really into nuclear. I'm into nuclear. It's great. But like, how do you actually build up a nuclear industry? Everyone's like, well, we know it's the answer. I'm like, okay, fine. Let's okay, all great. assume that the answer. Now we got to build a nuclear plant. Who rate bases what? Like what supply chain provider does this, right? And I think that that's where things get messy. And that's where there's actually a lot of missing holes in the strategy. And so we got to start identifying the missing holes and then finding the people that are smart enough to fill them. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I had, so a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, I had um, the Institute for Market Transformation and, he, and we really talked about, okay, these are all the places there where someone from a third party must intervene in how the market is currently acting to transform how things are done. So is that kind of, can you talk about why you sort of joined, you decided I'm going to go from this illustrious career and join the, the loan programs office, sort of why, why did you take the job? Well, I, I've always had the luxury of being able to, um, you know, think about these things in a, a holistic way, right? And, um, you know, my experience at Sun Edison was um, one where, you know, people just said, solar's too risky, power purchase agreements are not bankable, never going to happen, right? And, you know, when you think about that experience, um, it led me on a pathway to figuring out, you know, how does one solve these big problems, right? So I joined the Carbon War Room and, you know, figured out a way to get entrepreneurs around the world involved in climate change because we realized they're the change makers, right? They really want to change the status quo. And then, you know, we started to generate capital because, you know, there was no natural place for me to go to when I was at Sun Edison. And so the question is, like, for the people who are doing batteries as a service or now anaerobic digesters as a service or you know, buildings as a service or whatever it is, there was no natural place to go to get equity. Everybody just wanted to give you venture capital, right? And so, so when they offered me this job at the loan programs office, I was like, huh, that wasn't on the plan. And, but then, you know, you think about, there's all these people who have raised hundreds of millions of dollars of corporate equity. And now they need to build their first of a kind facility. That's $2 billion. Where do you go for debt on a $2 billion first-of-a-kind facility? And the loan programs office, as the secretary suggested in her um, confirmation hearing, has been dormant. And so even though you had a loan programs office, which at the time had $40 billion of loan authority, nobody thought that it was functioning well, right? And so, you know, after I got asked to serve, you know, when, you're, when the president and secretary of energy, like, ask you to serve, you, it's hard to say no. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So can you just give people an overview of how the, the the office works? What goals are you guys trying to, and this is obviously all public information, so we can just do a yeah. quick context setting. But for people that are listening to this that don't really know what you guys are doing, can you just give an overview of, of how, how this process works? Sure. So the loan programs office, um, you know, basically provides senior debt to projects, right? So we're not uh, providing equity. Um, so we provide money where the commercial banks won't bother, right? And so we're not necessarily taking risk um, from, an, uh, from a technology standpoint, right? Because we've got 10,000 engineers, scientists, and experts that can evaluate whether the technology itself will work. 
but we're taking um, execution risk. We're taking, you know, um, management risk, right? A mm -hmm. lot of those other more typical risks. And so we um, have a couple of different programs. We have the 1703 program, which is the Innovative Clean Energy Program. And then we have the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program, right? So 1703 is where we funded um, the solar and wind projects, the transmission, geothermal, uh, the Vogel nuclear plant, right? The ATVM pro uh, program is where we funded uh, Ford, Nissan, Tesla, and some of those kinds of things, right? And so as we move forward into the um, next phase of LPO, we have a couple of new programs, right? So the 1706 program lets us help refurbish, repurpose, replace existing energy infrastructure, both in power and in petroleum. Okay. And then we have the Tribal Energy Loan Program, which has been, you know, started in 2017 and scaled up under IRA. And then we have the CO2 transportation pipeline to take CO2 and bury it underground. I'd say, you know, in this latest phase of the Loan Programs Office, we have to take more um, perceived risk. So in the first phase, uh, the Loan Programs Office was largely a liquidity function, right? You had markets seize up. And so a lot of standard 20-year PPA projects asked for loans from the Loan Programs Office. Today, a lot of our projects have merchant offtake agreements, right? So uh, like if you look at sustainable aviation fuel, oftentimes you have a fixed volume of purchase, but the price fluctuates based on oil prices or that kind of stuff. Same with like critical minerals. Like we know how much critical minerals is coming out and people are willing to buy those, but they want the price to fluctuate with whatever the market price is of lithium or cobalt or, or graphite. Um, and so we're, we're having to take different risks and there's ways that we have to structure the deal to be able to meet what we call the reasonable prospect of repayment. Um, which means that we're more likely to get paid back than not. Um, and we've been able to bring in some really attract uh, great people, right? So we started with about 100 uh, awesome staff when I got here, and we were able to add another 100 or so people um, to the loan programs office, many of whom came straight from the private sector. And so uh, we're now staffed up. We're ready to go. Um, people put in loans lo in a loan application, in their part one application. We tell them if they qualify for the statutory requirements, if they meet the innovation and greenhouse gas requirements. If they do, they drop hundreds of files into a data room, and then we do due diligence on their loan and then give them a conditional commitment. Cool, cool. And and if you think about, you know, there's a bunch of different frameworks for the technology adoption lifecycle. Um, where do you guys sort of get involved or where are these loans sort of targeted in that lifecycle? Yeah, in general, um, innovation is, you know, a real standard, right? It's got to be technology innovation, not business model innovation. Okay. And, um, but what you find is, is that people are doing things differently all the time, right? And so there's a lot of deployments of first-of-a-kind technology. So it doesn't have to be, you know, the new, uh, you know, brand new uh, fusion, <laughs> nuclear fusion technology, right? It can be an incremental improvement over something else that it's replacing, right? And so... When you look at a lot of the hydrogen electrolyzer projects that we looked at for like the Delta ACES project that we did, um, you know, those are next generation electrolyzers. Electrolyzers have been around since the 1950s, but this is the next generation, far more efficient, you know, better materials being used, et cetera. When you look at like um, some of the other projects that we funded, like the monolith materials, conditional commitment, you know, that methane pyrolysis approach has been around for 25 years. But they basically have figured out a way to do it better, better quality results. Um, and, you know, a lot of incremental improvement as a result, right? So 
So, you know, the, the loan programs office um, does want real innovation, but the bar is far more accessible, I think, than people uh, otherwise think so. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, I know I heard you talk on, on a couple of different places recently around you personally going out and engaging people in different industries and saying like, why aren't you applying for my money? Right. At least, at least I'm paraphrasing what you, what you were saying, but how do you think about real estate specifically? And, um, you know, in the context of all these different industries, how do you think about real estate owners and getting them to use these loans to, to decarbonize their buildings? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we, um, there's some sectors that are obvious, right? So we do a lot of work in nuclear, carbon management, carbon, uh, you know, hydrogen um, transmission, you know, some of these other areas. Mm -hmm. There's some areas that are less obvious, like, you know, virtual power plants or um, EV charging networks or some of that stuff. And so we've talked to a lot of asset managers. Um, you know, they come into loan programs office. They own, you know, billions of square feet of real estate. You know, they want to, like, figure out what to do. And, you know, we talk to them. They're like, well, you know, we have this NAV, and we just don't want to, like, actually mess that up by investing extra capital into energy efficiency. We want to, but we don't want to sign a contract with a third party and let them make money off of us. So we'd rather create our own fund and then have that fund actually invest in energy efficiency in our own buildings. And so, you know, what we said to people is we've said, look, you know, like, get off the dime, right? Like, like, I get it. You're being very intellectual about this, but like, get to a conclusion, get to the point. Like, what are you going to do to like, figure this out, right? And then Ukraine hit and, you know, energy prices went up, right? Because natural gas prices uh, spiked, you know, they've come down recently or uh, electricity wholesale market prices went up and then came down recently. But a lot of building owners are like, oh, crap, maybe we should take these 20 years of, um, you know, proposals that we've received and actually do <laughs> something finally, right? Because the payback is no longer six years. Now it's four years because, you know, where energy costs went. And so, um, so I think we've been very helpful in thinking this stuff through with them and saying, look, it doesn't really matter whether you go left, right, up or down, but you can't do nothing. You can't not do it, right? And I'd say that... Um, we haven't succeeded yet. I'd say we're on month 19 and some of these conversations with the largest real estate owners in the United States. Um, but we are seeing a sense of them realizing that they're now becoming laggards, right? That these empty promises that they've made at COP or other places about how they're going to reduce carbon emissions or other things, like they actually have to act upon it at some point. They can't just sit there and keep making empty promises. And so so I think we sit here and we try to help them think through their um, the way that they want to solve it. And now that we've helped facilitate this conversation with probably 20 asset managers, I'd say that as well as corresponding entrepreneurs, um, I'd say that we actually know that there's a path forward where they can use our money and get there, but they still have to chart that out for us, right? We can't totally. want it more than they do. So what, what is that chart? That was going to be our next question here is, is what we do a lot on this podcast is sort of unpack that framework that sort of any real estate organization or any building owner organization can follow, right? I need to collect all my utility information. I need to benchmark. I need to create a roadmap for all the retrofits that need to happen in my building. I need to install technology, blah, 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 right? Where do you guys propose that these loans sort of come in 
um, and, and, how, and what is that roadmap that you guys have said, okay, here's how you use us. Here's how you decarbonize. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, so our, our roadmaps are not absolute. And from the perspective of what does the country need, our roadmap mm -hmm. is tailored to what that asset manager needs or that entrepreneur needs, right? Every Got one it. of our loans is sort of specific, but I'll give you an example. Like one of the company came to us and said, look, we really, um, you know, are ready to go. Um, but the, the real estate investment trust that we're talking to just refuses to guarantee the paper at the, the whole co level. They really want to sign the contracts at the bankruptable LLC level, right? Okay. Because they're already taking vacancy risks. They don't want to double down on vacancy risk by having to pay a payment back to us when their building goes empty. Right. Yeah. And so I said, well, we're happy to take vacancy risks. They're like, what? You're the only group I've ever heard of say that. I was like, yeah, look, I mean, we can take vacancy risk. Now we have to like hire a CMBS provider and actually, you know, like a commercial mortgage-backed security advisor and say, well, what is the likely vacancy rate that we'll have across mm -hmm. this portfolio? And then we built that vacancy rate into the spreadsheet model. Um, and then we, you know, say, well, instead of charging hundred dollars, you're going to have to charge $107 because we're going to put the other $7 into a reserve account. So that like, if there's more vacancy that we can pull out the reserve account. So we, we can figure out solutions to the problem as long as they actually know what the problem is that's holding them back from getting totally. their contract signed. Right. Um, and so like, so I do think that there are solutions to every one of these problems, but I think the challenge is honestly that, um, for the vast majority of asset owners that we've talked to. They've said that they are, they are greatly disappointed at the ability for people to be turnkey, mm. right? They want to just turn their entire real estate portfolio over to somebody and say, just do it, right? And have yeah. the balance sheet to back it up. So we don't want it to be a startup company. We want it to be somebody owned by a billion dollar balance sheet that can actually, you know, make representations and guarantees on the quality of the performance and all that stuff, right? And so... um and frankly, those companies are few and far between. There aren't a lot of folks you can just hand the keys off to that have, you know, all of the pedigree that you want, as well as cybersecurity experience, as well as all the other pieces, and uh, are willing to do it in a systematic turkey way. There are some for sure, but not a lot. And so I think that that also is a big missing piece. Yeah, absolutely. The, the you know, the career path I came from is in the public side, right? Um, governments you know, municipalities, universities, and that model, that ESCO model is very, you know, prevalent over on that side, but in, for a REIT, for, you know, a, a private organization, privately held real estate organizations, a little bit less common. And yeah, you're right. The, the companies are out there, right? We have people that are listening to this right now saying, I can do that. Right. But yeah, just, just connecting those, those dots and getting the, you know, the, the REITs to trust those organizations because it's a kind of new model. So they would basically apply for that loan. You guys would help them put together the right terms you're saying. And then ideally what they're saying is give me a hundred million dollars and I'm going to go out and do retrofits across my 50 buildings. Is that kind of the, the what you're expecting to, the roadmap to be? Yeah. So most of them would come in and say, I have this unified business plan where I'm using my proprietary software and hardware dispatch you know, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. I've got $20 million worth of contracts already signed. And then I have letters of intent for another $300 million worth of projects. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. where, you know, I expect 20% of that at least or 50% of that at least to clear and over the next three years. And so let's get started with the 20 million and then we approve you for a hundred million dollar loan. And then the other 80 million has to look like the 20 million, mm-hmm. right? So we can't get people blind capital. So we have to actually underwrite a specific contract, a specific business model. And then they have to, then those new projects have to match what we underwrite, mm. right? And so, okay. but we can start with a smaller group of projects fully booked and signed contracts on, and then more coming in the future that would look exactly the same way. Okay. And when you say turnkey, are you looking to write, give that loan money to someone that's going to be the turnkey implementer of all those retrofits for that real estate organization? No, no. The person who borrows money from us has to agree to be the fiduciary. Got it. Okay. Right. So it could be that the fiduciary is just throwing out a random, you know, name like Han Armstrong, right? And then Han Armstrong is partnered with these technology companies who are doing all this work and mm-hmm. we're guaranteeing or providing debt to Han Armstrong, right? And so like, it's got to be the fiduciary who's taking full responsibility for paying us back the loan. And sometimes that's the technology provider and sometimes it's not. Got it. Let's pause here for one more quick word from our sponsor and then we'll get back to the show. As we unpacked on one of our most popular episodes ever, episode 44 with the legendary John Petsy, SkySpark is a comprehensive software platform for connecting, storing, analyzing, and visualizing data from devices and equipment systems. SkySpark's automated analytics, KPIs, energy, and greenhouse gas apps turn your data into actionable intelligence, providing improved performance, reduced downtime, and operational savings. Head over to skyfoundry.com for insightful white papers, case studies, and blog posts, as well as a link to sign up for a free demo. Cool. Uh, let's dive into virtual power plants. That's something that you, you smile as you smile when you hear the, that phrase, because it's a, it's a current, it's all on your mind a lot lately. It seems like right now I've heard you talk about it in several different places. Um, Maybe let's just start. We've talked about virtual power plants on this show before, but for people that haven't listened to those episodes, you said there's simply no other cost-effective way besides VPPs to integrate electric vehicles and heat pumps at scale. I think that's a nice summary, but can you just talk about why that is and why VPPs are important to you? Yeah, I think, I think look, when you think about what we did in the 1970s and 80s, the 1970s and 80s, basically very few people had air conditioning in this country. Then starting around 1980, people started installing air conditioning like there was nobody's business, right? And then by yep. the 1990s, people had air conditioning. You can imagine that greatly increased the load in every residential home. The way we solved that problem was by building a whole bunch of natural gas peaker plants, along with increasing the transmission and distribution system to mm-hmm. feed those folks. And as a result, electricity rates have gone up by faster than inflation, right? Um, and so we, we took our T&D infrastructure and we had an asset utilization rate of roughly 60% in the 1970s. And today we have roughly an asset utilization rate of 40%. So because the peaks are peakier and the, the troughs are lower, right? Then the utilization of that infrastructure is lower because you have to build it for the peak, right? Um, and even back then we had those radio devices that would go onto people's air conditioning systems and 
I know I lived in the DC area, Pepco would like pay you four bucks a month to, you know, be able to shut off your air conditioner if they had an emergency situation. And they used radio signals to, 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 to talk to them. So it's not like they did, they, they had a VPP back then. It was limited in mm -hmm. scope. And also I'd say like, if you look at rural electric co-ops, many of them have managed people's water heaters for 30 years. Yes, this isn't right? new. So that's not new either, right? Um, so now the question becomes, we're going to um, go into this next phase of electricity growth. Remember, we have not grown electricity load since like 2003. So the last 20 years, we've basically been flat. Now we expect growth. And depending on who you talk to, it could be up to 1% a year, it could be a half percent a year, you know, we'll sort of see. Um, and some of that growth is going to come from electric vehicles and heat pumps. Some of that votes the growth is going to come from uh, electrifying everything on the industrial side, et cetera. So there's a lot of growth yeah. coming. Um, and so now we're going through the same exercise as we did for air conditioning. Do we want to increase distribution systems even more so that everybody who comes home from work or picking up their kid from school can plug in their car at the exact same time? It charges for the one hour and 20 minutes it takes to fill up the tank. And, um, and then it, the car is left plugged in for 11 hours. Right. So you could mm -hmm. like schedule everybody's loads for that 11 hours and make sure everyone's full. Or you could like actually use the app on their phone to figure out how much power is in their car and whether at whether they're at 71 percent state of charge or 21 percent state of charge. Right. And give mm -hmm. people a different experience based on whether state of charge is. Right. And so there's all these things you can do. And remember, we also have like five apps on people's phones. Right. Whether it's the smart building system app right, where you have a smart panel, right, or whether it's like a smart thermostat or a smart water heater. People are doing smart refrigerators where they can like order food directly from their refrigerator app, right? <laughs> They've got smart batteries and solar systems where their solar plus storage has an app as well. So you got all these smart apps that allows you to turn on and off loads that does all these things, right? And the question becomes, right, would you rather pay those people for demand flexibility, or do you want to like, you know, pay to increase the cost of the, um, of the distribution system, right? So like, and that, to me, that's the challenge, right? And so like, you know, so fundamentally, um, you know, virtual power plants are aggregations of distributed energy generation, storage, and responsive loads that are integrated with the grid for the purpose of a more efficient, clean, cost-effective, and resilient energy system. Right. So that's what it is. Um, but, you know, the other quick and dirty way to say it is basically um, we pay roughly $10 billion or more per year for balancing the grid using natural gas peaker plants and lots of other stuff. Right. Because supply and demand have to equal each other. And we could be paying that to households for those services instead. Some households totally. want that money. Or businesses, totally. for that matter. Absolutely. Can you talk about how you think about this in terms of this is really the first time I see, you know, and I come from what you might call the behind the meter world, right? Helping building owners on the, you know, the building side, the building system side. The VPP is really the connecting point between all the complexity happening on the grid and all the complexity happening behind the meter. How do you think about when you guys are trying to give out money? Uh, like that being this new nexus, right? Where for the first time there's 
communication happening between building owner or like you said, homeowner and this grid entity. And then now there's this VPP aggregator sitting in the middle. How do you think about that sort of disruption happening right now? Yeah, I mean, I think that the data streams are the hardest part, right? And yeah. the, the transparency of those data streams. But in some ways, right, FERC Order 2222 is supposed to mandate access to those data streams, right? Like, how do you integrate, like, all of the independent system operators are expected to treat VPPs exactly the same that they treat natural gas peaker plants and other mm -hmm. things, right? That's mm -hmm. really what FERC Order 2222 says. And so now you have to make sure that that data stream is available in a granular enough fashion um, to be able to do things with it, right? And like in PJM, you have nodes. So what they said in their, you know, in their uh, FERC Order 2222 rules is that you need to aggregate at least 100 kilowatts of load per node to be able to compete in the market, right? And so, um, but that's pretty easy to do, right? I mean, if someone puts in a water heater, usually they fill out a warranty card. You know where that water heater sits. They have the ability to change the temperature with their app on their phone. So you can actually turn, you can control when it turns on and off, et cetera. And now the question becomes like, you know, what is the amount of, um, of money that a household or a business wants to get paid for that service, right? So it's a dial. It's not on or off. It's, do you want less disruption? more disruption, right? Some people are going to say full disruption. Just pay me as much money as I can. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy for my thermostat to, to, you know, go from 66 degrees to 74 degrees, right? And others are going to say, mm, no, I'm happy to like keep it from 69 to 71, right? Or I'm happy for you to control my water heater as much as you want, but you know, I don't want my battery in my garage to ever go below 80% state of charge because it's there for to back up my house. And so I don't want it to be drained for this purpose, right? Um, and so you have all of these like consumer preferences and each person is going to have a different set of preferences um, and different set of things that they're optimizing for, right? But it all starts with getting a proper signal from the ISOs and from the utilities, right? Because if they can't send you a proper signal then the software, the hardware that is controlling your, uh, mm -hmm. you know, virtual power plant contribution doesn't actually know what to do on a passive basis, right? Or when and to so, do it, yeah. Yeah, or when to do it, right? So so that, that data stream, I think, to me is the big missing layer and has been for a long time. And once that data stream is available, I mean, when you talk to Matt Golden over at Recurve or some of these other players, he'll tell you that, like, it's shocking. Like once that data stream comes in and you back test, the regulators look at it and go, oh my God, we could have done this at a 90% cheaper cost than what we approved. This is crazy. Mm -hmm. We didn't know it was so cheap, but it is that cheap. And you're paying homeowners, um, you know, to get involved uh, and be part of the solution. Absolutely. A lot of buildings. So if I just like speak for our audience right now, a lot of buildings don't have access to that information right now. How do you see, you know, a building getting connected into that ISO data communication stream? Is it through one of these aggregators or is it through open source uh, communication methods from the utilities? Is it yeah. through something else? How do you see that connection point happening? So, I mean, obviously DOE doesn't have an official point of view. I mean, we're 
pro every option. But mm -hmm. I'd say that in the first few years of this rolling out, which is where we are today, you're going to want a partner because the rules are changing every three months. Right. So you want a partner to help you through all those rule changes so that you don't have to, you know, become an expert and all that stuff. Right. So, so, I mean, I do think that a lot of folks are choosing to go with aggregators or, you know, some sort of platform to help them through this process. And, and they're deciding which loads uh, they're comfortable with. Like Walmart, for instance, for years has been fine participating in demand response programs with half of their lights. So they wired their lights in the store where you could shut off every other light in a demand response, you know, situation, right? Others have been fine with like boilers and, you know, and, and figuring out how to like, you know, use thermal storage, right? And so I think each group is going to have a different set of loads. And I think they're also going to be more comfortable over time as they see what their, you know, tenants comfort level is with the level of disruption or lack thereof. Right. And so, so my sense is that's probably where this starts. And then mm -hmm. as the market becomes a lot more stable, then you end up with folks choosing to, you know, cut out the middleman and maybe use more open source software or other things. Totally. Yeah. Can we talk about a little bit how, like which specific technologies you're talking about, um, you guys, you know, funding right through the program. So the way I think about it is like, it seems like solar and behind the meter storage are maybe the, the easier ones, right? The more, uh, traditional ones. Um, yeah. once you get into, we've been talking about data access. We talk a lot on this podcast about, um, just like connecting devices themselves. So you talked about yeah. the refrigerator in commercial buildings. Obviously there's like the EV charger and there's all the other HVAC system connected to the internet, all yeah. that getting all of that connected, getting control systems in general. So we've done research and, and see, and the DOE has done research um, on the fact that 87% of commercial buildings under 50,000 square feet don't even have control of their HVAC systems today. So you can't connect them to a VPP unless you have that control system ability. So how do you guys think about where the money needs to go? Do you just install solar everywhere or is it, yeah. we need to start connecting all these different devices as well? Well, so I can only answer the question on behalf of the loan programs office, not necessarily DOE broadly. So yeah. at, so the fact that we're a loan programs office means that our nexus are loans, right? So what you find is, is that pick a number, one fifteenth of stuff breaks every year, right? Maybe it's one nineteenth or whatever, right? Of yeah. all the stuff out there breaks every year, whether it's the HVAC system or whether it's, you know, lighting or, you know, or other things. And so, so when that breaks, then you have an opportunity to put in something that's new, right? And when you put in something that's new, you have the opportunity to pretty cost-effectively also connect um, that new piece of equipment to some sort of, uh, you know, system that then mm -hmm. lets you dispatch um, that new appliance, right? Totally. And while you're there, if they give you permission, you can actually... Um, add sensors and and um, capabilities to some of the other existing loads that are there that might be well suited for this by putting something on it externally because you're not paying for the truck roll you're already going to the building right so yeah um, so my sense is is that because we're a loan programs office we're basically looking at um, the measures that people install that are new to replace broken stuff and uh -huh. where they're using a loan to actually do it and not paying cash, right? 
And in the residential space, that turns out to be roughly 43% of everything that gets fixed every month, which is probably around five to, you know, eight billion a month. So, you know, pretty substantial quantity. Um, and then you probably have a roughly similar number in commercial buildings, particularly the small buildings, right? And many of those small buildings, as you know, their credit comes from their personal FICO score. Right? Right. They generally have to guarantee most of those loans, right? So, so in some ways, those small business loans are actually operating exactly the same as personal loans um, yeah. in terms of the way in which they're underwritten. So, so that's the nexus where the loan programs office comes in. And what we found is that when you look at the data that DOE has collected over the last 20 years, the loss rates of those loans are far lower than the loss rates on credit card receivables and healthcare receivables. But S&P, Moody's, and Kroll are largely using healthcare receivables and, 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 uh, and credit card receivables because they're like, ah, oh, might as well be conservative. But in doing that, they're basically um, inadvertently really hurting LMI customers, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of low moderate income customers and, you know, low FICO customers, some of which are overlapping and some of which aren't, um, that, you know, basically end up paying an unsubsidized interest rate, right, after expected losses of like 12, 13% when right. they could be getting it at 9% if they use DOE data, right? And so, you know, I think that's critically important because those are huge differences in interest rates. Um, and then while they're at it, now you can connect someone to a VPP and collect revenues for participating in the VPP, which now furthers your, lowers your payment even more so that it becomes even more cost-effective to go this way. So I would say that, and so we have the ability to go to S&P Moody's and Kroll and saying to them, we will guarantee these loans using federal backstop, using our um, data at DOE in a way that you're not comfortable with yet, but we're comfortable with. And as long as we're guaranteeing it, you should just, you know, view that guarantee as, as federal, federal uh, government, you know, uh, you know, uh, credit rating. Got it. Got it. So if I, if I just repeat this back to you a little bit in my own words, if I'm a building owner and I have, you know, a 15 year old HVAC control system that I need to replace, I can say, Hey, I'm going to go replace that right now. It's old. We need to replace it, but I'm also going to hook it up to a VPP and provide X KW and demand flexibility. In order to do that, we need a loan on the extra cost versus like for like replacement. And that's what the application would look like. Well, it could be for the whole thing, not just the extra cost. But I would say okay. that it, it operates a little bit differently than that, right? So a finance program would come to us and say, we want to guarantee a billion dollars of loans, okay. right? We have $200 million already, you know, lined up and, you know, sort of signed. And we're signing $50 million a month of new loan uh, volume every month, right? And they're going to that business owner and saying to them that, you know, when your HVAC system breaks, you're used to paying 18% interest for that. We're happy to give it to you for 9.9, mm. um, you know, and so sign this loan document when, you know, when your stuff breaks and you're ready to replace it, right? Got it. And, but the only equipment that qualifies is the equipment that can be registered with a VPP, yeah. which at this point is pretty much everything. Okay. Like pretty much all new stuff, okay. you know, can, and, you know, for sure by next year, everything will be, yes, everybody wants to control their stuff with an app. Right. And so, yeah. 
So, so then they put in their stuff and we say in the loan documents that you must uh, register it with a VPP. Okay. Right. Okay. And we separately say once you're registered with a VPP, because you can imagine some geographies have no VPP, right? So you can't register anything. So we say, you know, when it becomes available, you have to register it into a VPP, right? Okay. And we separately say, once you register with a VPP, you can opt yourself out. So, you know, you might decide five days later, 30 days later, two years later, you no longer want to be part of a VPP, so you opt out. So the full consumer protection is in there as well. But you know, you and I both know that like putting in VPP functionality doesn't mean that anyone's going to actually opt in. Yeah. Right. So we sort of in the loan agreement say, you got to get up, you got to get opted in. And then you have all the rights in the world to opt yourself out. Absolutely. Very cool. All right. Last question on, on how these work before we kind of wrap up here. Um, where does like infrastructure fit? Right. So and when I say infrastructure, I'm talking about like, for example, a network in a building, right? So I'm going to hook up my new boiler or my new heat pump to this control system. This control system sits on network infrastructure. Only if that is cyber secure, can we start to talk to the grid with that system, for example. Yep. Um, is is that sort of, you know, are those sorts of systems included in, in the scope of what you guys are incentivizing? Yeah, so anything that is specifically enabling to the VPP qualifies. Right. Really? So the network and the cybersecurity in and of itself doesn't qualify, but to the extent that it's part of what's required to get the building yeah. opted into this system, then it does qualify. Got it. Got it. How about any investments that need to be made around interoperability? So it seems like that's a big obstacle here. I'm sure you see that as like this system has to talk to this system, which has to talk to the grid. You're saying any upgrades that need to happen to enable that communication are qualified as well. Yeah. I mean, as, as long as it's part of the project scope. Yeah. Right. Okay. So like, you know, like, so it, we also separately see that like everything that gets installed now is some version of 1.0 and that you're probably going to have over the air upgrades to your system every yeah. three to six months. And that four years from now, these systems are going to be far more accurate and powerful than they are right now. Cool, cool. All right, we love to close down this these episodes with what we call carve outs. So, um, any books, TV shows, podcasts? I'm excited to hear what Jigger says about this. But documentaries, movies that have had sort of a big, a big impact on you lately. A anything come to mind? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that. Um, uh, on the podcast side, I love my friends at Odd Lots. I think they're just, um, you know, really amazing. And, uh, and you know, like just it's fascinating to me how the whole supply chain works and how, you know, there's just a, uh, uh, a level of interconnectedness that, frankly, I don't think any of us really understood until after, um, you know, the COVID crisis and, and, totally. uh, and all that stuff. Um, all right. From a, from a, a book perspective, you know, there's so many books and I like all of them, but, um, the one I most recently read was California burning by Catherine Blunt on the PG&E, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, fiasco and, and, you know, and it really was an extraordinary book and it, you know, even Patty Poppy at PG&E recommended her employees read it. Right. I just think yeah. that instead of demonizing these folks, you know, like really understanding why, what happened, happened and. Understanding how to be more helpful, I think, is 
you know, fantastic um, uh, way to do things. Um, in terms of inspiration on the documentary side, the History Channel has all these like series of things like, you know, the engineering marvels that change the world, the, you know, the people behind, you know, building big things in the United States of America, right? So I love watching all those things. It's just awesome to see America has done extraordinary big things in its history. And I think that somehow the American public has grown to believe that we can't do big things anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I really think that that is a misnomer. And I really think when you think about what we're about to embark on today, like reminding yourself that we did all these big things in the past really inspires me to, you know, realize that we can do big things again. Absolutely. Um, that's a great place to end off. Anything else to say to the smart buildings world from, from Jigger? You know, we got to hit absolute outcomes. I, I honestly think that this industry, um, along with other energy efficiency industries, have largely, you know, focused on here's why we can't scale. Here's, here are the steps that are away. You know, we have all these people who don't want us to succeed, whatever it is. I think today it's no more excuses. Like deliver. We all got to deliver, right? If you need something from me, tell me what you need but I want you to deliver, right? We are in a global energy crisis and we need to figure out how energy efficiency and demand flexibility plays a critical role in that crisis. And uh, so hold me accountable, but I'm going to hold you accountable. Beautiful. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Jigger. Thanks for having me. All right, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.